Sorry about that. My hips and my legs seem to be giving away a little bit this morning. Which brings me to the topic of my retirement. As I get closer to retirement, I keep wondering what I'm going to do with all the things that I've accumulated in my office. Because I am quite confident that Pam is never going to let me bring them into our house. The truth is, over the years, a lot of stuff has uh, shown up on my walls and, and the shelves of my study. My drawers are filled with knickknacks, including everything from medicine to snacks. And that doesn't even include all the books that I've accumulated over the last 45 years. All of which proves that if you spend as much time at church as I do, you tend to surround yourself with the little comforts of home. But you also tend to be a little bit isolated from the challenges of trying to live a Christian life. In other words, I don't get tossed out there into the real world the way you do on a Monday morning. You have to struggle with questions like, do the beliefs, the values, the teachings of the Bible really work outside of the church sanctuary? You know, the word sanctuary means a place of refuge. Does your faith work outside of this place of refuge? Sometimes you can't even help but wonder if it's even possible to live a Christian life in a cutthroat, dog-eat-dog, bottom-line world. Well, these are some of the questions we're going to try to answer this morning during this sermon. But before we get to that, we do need to recognize a few facts. The, fact, the first fact is, Jesus says, you will be hated because of me. I think Jeff Greenfield is one of the most perceptive journalists working in America today. In one of his books, he writes these words, On a typical Sunday morning in America, there are more people attending houses of worship than the total attendance at all the NFL games in a season. And yet, to watch national television news, you'd think this country is totally indifferent to matters of faith. I just want to tell you one thing. This is nothing that is new. The world has always been indifferent, if not downright hostile, to the truth of God's Word. After all, the Bible doesn't make any compromises with sin, and the world has never liked that. Go back and read the Old Testament. The Jewish people were subjected to countless episodes of persecution over the years. Everywhere they went, people disliked them. They treated them badly. And why? Because they were stubbornly obedient to God's Word. And that made the people that they encountered sort of uncomfortable, kind of uneasy with them. When Jesus taught His disciples what it would be like to live in the world as a Christian, He said, you will be hated by everyone because of Me. As a general rule, Christians today have no idea what it is to be hated because of their relationship with God, at least Christians here in the United States. Do you remember when Dan Cathy, the CEO of Chick-fil-A, took a stand supporting traditional marriage between a man and a woman? Which is actually what he said, but his words have been twisted by people with an agenda ever since. My problem comes when some prominent Christians claim 
that, that people like Dan Cathy are being hated or persecuted because of their faith. My point is, who is persecuting Dan Cathy? I mean, every time I go to, to try to run by Chick-fil-A to get some ice cream, I find that there's a mile-long line that I will not wait for, even if it is their pleasure to serve me. Dan Cathy's business has not been affected one iota. Dan Cathy isn't going to jail for his opinions. As an American citizen, he still has the right to say whatever he pleases. Look, if Dan Cathy is your idea of a persecuted Christian, then you'd have no idea what it means to be hated because of Jesus. Being persecuted for your faith means people, and most importantly, the power of the government is used to beat you, to imprison you, and even kill you because you proclaim your faith in Christ. That's what it means to be persecuted for your faith. And in today's world, there are millions of Christians who live with this every day. They are persecuted for their faith. They are martyred for their beliefs in Jesus. But that is not happening to Christians who live in the United States, and we can be thankful for that. But if genuine persecution should ever happen to you, or someone should simply say they don't like the things that you talk about when you talk about Jesus, you are not supposed to whine about it and complain that you're being persecuted. Instead, you're supposed to consider it an honor, a privilege, a joy to suffer for the cause of Christ. The second thing that, the second fact that you need to recognize is you need to live out your beliefs. You have a responsibility to live out those beliefs every single day. Now, we know that the world doesn't like to be reminded of the truth of God. Many Christians today believe that they no longer have the rights to, to express their values and convictions out in the world. See, the world says you're not supposed to impose your beliefs on another person. You ever heard that expression? All right. The truth is you can't impose belief on anyone. It is All it is, your Christian responsibility is simply this to live out your faith everywhere you go. And why would, I don't know why anybody would have any objections to that. I mean, look at the values taught in the Bible. Love, compassion, grace, and life-changing love. Honesty, forgiveness, and personal integrity. Goodness, decency, morality, righteousness, ethical behavior, and a belief in the value of human life. Justice for all. Concern for the poor and the responsibility that we have to care for those who are less fortunate than we are. Have any of you been following Tim Tebow's efforts to become a tight end with the Jacksonville Jaguars? Now, Tim Tebow has never played that position, and he has, he has been out of the NFL for the last eight years, which means that he's attracting a lot of attention. Most sports pundits don't believe that Tim Tebow can, can, should be playing football at this time of his life. He was a, a, you know, let's be honest, he was a mediocre quarterback, and he has no skills of a tight end. But let's put aside looking at this from a sports perspective. 
Let's do what ESPN Stephen A. Smith has done when he thought about Tim Tebow. He said, Tim Tebow is a wonderful man who lives out his faith in Christ boldly and courageously. I just don't think he happens to have what it takes to make it in the NFL. All I know is that this dude is the genuine real deal as a human being. We know that every encouraging word that comes out of his mouth is believable, that he's draped in spirituality and leans on it more than his game. The thing is, if anybody is capable of making someone hope they are wrong, it's Tebow, who leaves you feeling that way. Decency breeds such emotion. In that department, Tim Tebow stands alone. Wouldn't you like someone to write those words about you? Listen to what it says in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Do not neglect, neglect your gift which was given to you through prophecy when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. And this brings me to the third fact about trying to live a Christian life. You must be prepared for the challenge. you got to prepare yourself for the challenge. You know, the Bible describes the Christian life as a form of spiritual warfare. You may think that you're simply dealing with a secular world who doesn't care much for the things of God, but the Bible says you are battling the rulers, the authorities, the powers in this, of this dark world, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That's what you're up against. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 13 through 17. Listen to what the Bible says here. Therefore put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Now, it might sound like Paul is simply describing the, the armor that's worn by a Roman soldier, but he's doing something more than that. What Paul is doing is he's trying, he's trying to tell you, just like a soldier would never think about going into battle without all of his armor, as a Christian, you should not think of going out into spiritual battle with all of your spiritual armor. And then Paul goes on to tell you what that armor is. He talks about the belt of truth. This refers to the truth of God's perfect, infallible Word, the Bible. He talks about the breastplate of righteousness. This is the righteousness that comes from a faith relationship with Jesus. For we are saved by faith, by grace, through faith, not of works, so that no one can boast. Paul talks about the shield of, of, of uh, the helmet of salvation, the, excuse me, the shield of faith. That the faith that rests on the simple trust and belief that what God says is true. He talks about the helmet of salvation. This is the confidence and assurance that comes from knowing Jesus as your personal Savior. And then Paul talks about the sword of the Spirit. This is the power that comes to you through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. 
And if you are a born-again believer, if you know Jesus is your Savior, the Holy Spirit dwells within you. Now let me make a couple of points about putting on this spiritual armor. It's an ongoing process. You don't do it once and then say, well, I've got my spiritual armor on, I don't need to worry about it anymore. This is something that requires the daily disciplines of prayer and Bible study, worship and fellowship. Jesus put it this way, he said, take up your cross daily and follow me. All right. Up to this point, we've been talking about some of the facts that are associated with living a Christian life that you need to be aware of. Now let's, I'm going to start telling you about how you can prepare yourself for the challenges of living a Christ-like life. I want to share some ideas with you that will help you in your daily struggle. The first of these is this. Begin each day with a prayer of commitment. When I was a young man, I, when, I was your first year pastor, I used to get to bed around 11, wake up at 4.30 in the morning, and be in the office by 7 o'clock. Now, some of you will understand exactly what I'm about to say. I can't do that anymore. I go to bed earlier, I sleep later, and I try to be in the office between 8.15 and 8.30. There's one part of my routine that's never changed. I try to begin each day with God in prayer. And my prayer goes something like this. Father, today I want to be your faithful servant. I want everything that I do to bring glory and honor to your name. That is a prayer of commitment. Look, making a choice to live your life for Christ is the key to having a victorious life, a victorious win in the spiritual battle. But this is one of those things where you have to be all in. Without your daily renewal of your commitment to God, you'll inevitably stumble and fall. Now, Listen, to Jesus talks about this in Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16. Listen to what he says. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Jesus says, as Christians, you and I are supposed to be a light to the world, the light of the world. Your purpose should always be to exalt the name of Jesus Christ, to proclaim Him as King of kings and Lord of lords over all. You know, I've said this a lot of times, but it still needs to be repeated. Always remember this. Your life may be the only witness someone has to the truth of God. Abraham Lincoln once attended a worship service that was being preached by a very prominent pastor. After the service was over, someone asked the president what he thought of the sermon. He said, well, I didn't particularly care for it. His questioner kind of had an odd, puzzled look on his face. He said, why not? Didn't, did the, didn't the preacher do a good job? Lincoln replied, actually, he did. He handled his text remarkably. His delivery was impeccable so then why didn't you like the sermon? Because he never challenged me to do something great for God. Never challenged me to do something great for God. 
Folks, today I'm offering you the ultimate challenge. On behalf of God, I'm asking you to live for Christ in a non-Christian world. I'm asking you to be a light to the nations. I'm asking you to share with others the way of salvation in the name of Jesus. It's not easy. That's why you have to begin each day with that prayer of commitment. And that means to me the second thing you can do to, to grow your spiritual life, don't put yourself in situations that might ask you to compromise your faith or sin against God. Right now, I want you to listen to, to as I read the Lord's Prayer. It's, it's, actually, this is from the Message Bible, so it's going to sound a little different. Our Father in heaven, reveal who you are. Set the world right. Do what's best. As above, so below. Keep us alive with three square meals. Keep us forgiven with you and forgiven with others. Keep us safe from ourselves and the devil. You're in charge. You can do anything you want. You're ablaze in glory. Yes, yes, yes. Now I will grant you that this particular translation does not have the same beautiful language that the King James Version has. But I like the way it says, keep us safe from the devil and from ourselves. See, a lot of times you fall into temptation because you put yourself in situations where the temptation to sin is so great. Think about it this way. If you were, if you dealt with the disease of alcoholism, where would you have a greater chance of having a victory in your struggle? By hanging out at a bar or by going to church and hanging out with Christian friends? Don't even have to answer that question, do you? We know what the answer is. Don't put yourself in those situations where Satan can tempt you. Now, God will, get, will, and He can, and He will give you strength to defeat any temptation that comes into your life. But, I mean, why give Satan a chance to take pot shots at you? Ever thought about that? Why do that? Learn to avoid those circumstances and situations that prevent unbearable temptation. It's the only wise and Christ-like thing to do. That brings us to the next thing. Thing you, thing you can do in, as you're trying to live a Christian life. And that is, ask yourself a question. What would Jesus do? Remember those bracelets, WWJD? You know, I've often thought it would be great if God just would just, you know, create a website. Surely somebody up in heaven can, can create a website, right? And wouldn't it be great, every time you had a question about what you should do in a particular situation, you could just type in something like, uh, what do I do when I know I've been undercharged on a, on, a, on, a, on a restaurant bill? You ever been in that situation? Some people always, people always complain when they get charged too much. But Chris, they don't complain when they get charged too little, do they? Okay, so you could type that question into your, into your computer or smartphone and the answer would come back. You should be honest and point out the mistake to the wait, waitress or waiter. But the problem is, GodAnswers.com doesn't exist. And, and, and so you have to try to use the resources that you've got to decide what Jesus would do. Now, the, lead, the resources that you have include the, the, the guidance of the perfect Word of God, the leadership of the Holy, question, and the leadership of the Holy Spirit. 
But over the years, I've, I've developed four questions that I always ask myself when I'm trying to figure out what would Jesus do. The first question is, will, this, will what I'm about to do bring glory to Jesus or harm the cause of Christ? As a Christian, your goal should be to bring glory to God in everything that you say and do. Your goal should be to never do anything that would harm the proclamation of the name of Jesus. Now, if what you're thinking about doing you know, does not accomplish those goals, then you shouldn't do it. The second question you can ask yourself goes like this. Would Jesus do what I'm thinking about doing? Now, Jesus was never the boring killjoy that some Christians try to make him out to be. But make no mistake about it. Everything that Jesus did honored and glorified his heavenly daddy God. So if you couldn't imagine Jesus doing what you're thinking about doing, it's probably not a good idea to do it yourself. Third, ask yourself this question. Did Jesus face anything similar in the Bible? Now, in this sped-up, technology-driven world, you're not going to be able to answer the, the, the question, every question that you have. We've already talked about that. I mean, Jesus didn't know anything about hybrid cars or cloud computing, right? So some things are going to come along where the Bible just doesn't have a, have a clear answer for you. But if the worst thing that happens is you spend more time studying the Bible, you will be blessed and God will give you leadership. Finally, you can ask yourself, ask yourself this question. Will what I'm doing put a smile on God's face? In the purpose-driven life, Rick Warren points out that you and I were created to bring God pleasure. By asking yourself this question, would, would, would this put a smile on God's face? 99 times out of 100, you'll wind up doing the right thing. And that brings me to another way that you can, a thing you can think about to help you grow in Christ, to live a glorious Christian life. Exercise caution when it comes to the gray areas of life. You know, some things that you and I face in life are very simple. If the Bible says do something, you do it. If the Bible says don't do something, you don't do it. You obey God's word or you're choosing to sin against God. It's that simple. But what about those gray areas? Situations or circumstances where you can't point to a specific answer in the Bible. That's when the going gets tough. Let me give you four examples of gray areas in, in our lives. Entertainment can be a gray area, the entertainment choices that you make. Now, some people believe that you should never watch a movie that was produced in Hollywood and never listen to any music unless it's Christian music. Other Christians enjoy a wide variety of entertainment. I, I do. Man, there, there, there are literally thousands of songs of every genre on my phone, mostly jazz. So I like it. But, you know, if it's a gray area in your life and, and you feel like it's keeping you from living for Jesus, don't do it. Gambling is a gray area in life. Some Christians are opposed to any and all forms of gambling. Others see no problem with, you know, buying a lottery ticket or or playing bingo, or, or you know, gathering together for a group, with a group of friends to play a game of poker. Work can often create gray areas in your life. 
These days, many employers expect employees to work on Sunday. You know, think about it. My, my employer's been doing that for the last 40 years of my life. But you know, in today's economy, it may not be possible to tell your employer, I'm not going to be working Sunday because I'll be in church, because that can get you fired. The consumption of alcohol as a beverage is a gray area for some people. Look, there's no doubt the Bible warns against drunkenness and the abuse of alcohol can lead to serious health problems. On the other hand, there's no question that Jesus drank wine. Talks about it. The Bible describes him drinking wine. You know, this is how how legalistic and ridiculous some people in the Southern Baptist Convention have become lately. There are people, including missionaries, who are being fired because they drink wine. Which leads me to the conclusion that Jesus wouldn't be allowed to be a missionary in the Southern Baptist Convention, which is kind of ridiculous, isn't it? You know, the Corinthian Christians faced a serious gray area when it came to the question of eating meat that had been sacrificed in pagan temples. Most of this meat was, mostly that was the only meat that was available in the Corinthian marketplaces. So some of these Corinthian Christians wrote Paul saying, what should we do about that? Well, Paul answers that question in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 8. Listen, 1 through 9. Listen to what the Bible, or take your Bibles and let's read and see what Jesus, what the Bible says here. Now about food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know, but whoever loves God is known by God. So then about eating food sacrificed to idols. We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father from whom all things came and from whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live." When Paul was talking about those other gods and lords, he was making sort of a sarcastic, it's sort of a sarcastic comment in the Greek. He, do, he doesn't believe, there, there, there are no such thing as other gods. But everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. Now, Paul is making two important points here. First of all, as a Christian, you have freedom in Christ, which means you don't have to worry about man-made rules and regulations. On the other hand, you should be careful not to hurt other Christians in the process of exercising your own freedom. Jesus made this responsibility clear in Luke chapter 17, verses 1 through 3. Things that cause people to stumble are bound to come, but woe to anyone through whom they come. It would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. So watch yourselves. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. 
And if they repent, forgive them. And that brings us to the final thing I, I want to tell you. Something that will help you with the challenge of living a Christian life. And that is, remember that God is still in the business of forgiving sin. Here's the problem with trying to engage in spiritual warfare in a world that does not believe in God. Sometimes you're going to fail. In spite of your best efforts, you're going to fall into sin. At times like this, 1 John chapter 1, verses 8-9 through 9, provides powerful words of encouragement. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Remember, John's writing these words to Christians. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. I want you to notice this if-then proposition that's in these two verses of Scripture. If you confess your sin to God, then God will graciously and freely forgive you of all your sins and cleanse and purify you. You know, the amazing story of God's grace is that you don't have to manipulate or convince God into forgiving you of your sin. In love, God decided long ago to forgive people in the name of Jesus. Romans 5, 6-8 six, six says, You see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Look, here's the bottom line. If you go through your life and you keep falling into sin, you can rest assured that through the blood of Jesus Christ, God is going to forgive you. And when God forgives you, He removes the stain of your sin as far as the east is from the west and chooses to remember it no more. Then God picks you up, dusts you off, and says, now, go back out there and keep trying to live from there. Of those thousands of songs that I mentioned a moment ago that are on my iPhone, one of my favorites is by a New Orleans band called the Neville Brothers. The song is called Sands of Time. And a line from the lyrics goes like, goes like this. Now the scriptures say to do our best, and the grace of God will do the rest. Which is really the answer to trying to live a Christian life. To every challenge that might come your way to know that the grace of God will do the rest. Let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, moment, this time of worship that we've had this morning. Father, we lift you up and glorify you for allowing us to be here today. And Father, everything that has happened today has been, to, has been planned out for a purpose. And that is people will be given a chance to respond to your call in their life. Maybe there's someone here today or who's watching online who's never asked Jesus to be their Savior. I pray, Father, that they will receive Christ into their life today and become a Christian by praying this prayer. 
Dear Jesus, I believe that You are God's one and only Son. Jesus, I believe that You died on the cross for me. Thank You, Jesus. Jesus, I believe that You were physically raised from the dead three days after Your death on the cross. Jesus, I confess to You that I'm a sinner. I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. I invite You to come into my life and be my Savior. And Father, if someone has prayed this prayer with me or just listened and nodded their heads and said, yes, God, this is what I want, this is what I believe, then Father, today they've become a Christian. And I hope that if they're here in the, in the sanctuary that they'll come forward when the invitation is given and say, Steve, I've asked Jesus to be my Savior and now I'm ready to be baptized in Jesus' name. If there's someone who's watching, I pray that they'll send me an, an email at the address shown on the screen. Father, there may be someone else who, who, who's looking for a new church home and they feel like that maybe this is the place. And I pray they'll come and say, I'd like to move my membership here. I'd like to join by statement, whatever, however way they come. If they're, again, Father, if they're watching online, just help them send me an email. An email. There may be others who want to recommit themselves to Jesus. Whatever decision needs to be made, Father, we pray that it will be made in your glorious name. We make this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.